welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode of Oil & Gas Onshore is powered by mCloud. MCloud is helping businesses all over the world curb energy waste, maximize energy production, and get the most out of critical energy infrastructure. MCloud is a leading provider of AI-powered asset management and environmental, social, and governance solutions. They've recently announced an all-in-one connected worker solution enabling the digital oil field and enhancing the productivity and safety of field workers across the energy interest industry. This technology is known as Asset Care Mobile. And it allows connected workers in the field to instantly access critical information about their assets in real time, communicate and collaborate with experts and other coworkers remotely, easily share photos and videos of equipment requiring repair, digitize processes and workflows such as operator rounds and field inspections, and work more safely in hazardous environments. To learn more, visit mcloudcorp.com or by clicking the link in the show notes. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm here at the Houston Canon with Liz Dannett, VP of Data Architecture and Engineering as of a couple weeks ago at Wood McKenzie. She's also a geologist, technologist, and slayer of data silos. She's a passionate technologist with over a decade of experience using data-driven approaches to solve pressing energy challenges. She has demonstrated success in pioneering novel data types, architectures, and analytical solutions through the energy value chain. Liz holds a master's and PhD in geoscience from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which you were there recently. Go Badgers! Right? And has completed executive <laughs> education at the height. How do you pronounce that? It's Haas. Haas. Like the avocado. Ah, okay. Haas School of Business. She is also passionate about building teams, board games, and stubbornly refusing to believe that things are hard, which I totally believe knowing you for the short period of time that I have. Which means also that there's a lot of stories that I'll lead into where an average person's like, you know, you probably could have found an easier way to do that. Like, you know, a year ago or eight (laughs) months ago. And looking back like, yeah, probably. But then it just doesn't make as good of stories. So it doesn't. It's all, yeah, it's all about making good stories, right? Right. Yeah. Hopefully we'll have some entertaining anecdotes today. I feel like we will. Well, Liz, welcome to the show. It's an honor to have you on. You're a celebrity here, so I like <laughs> it is. I feel like I'm in the presence of a celebrity. It is such a pleasure to be here. Uh, well, thank you so much. I love having great people like yourselves on the show. It makes for such good conversation and hopefully the listeners can learn something. I know I will. I already have and we've only been talking for like 20 minutes. I know. <laughs> right? I feel like most it's interesting because, and like I said, I was like, don't stop talking, but please stop talking because I want to make sure I record a lot of the conversation. But it's exciting when you get, you know, you're walking in here and we're talking and all this conversation strikes up. It's hard not to just start right away. So especially when you ask such tempting questions, like what have you done in the past 48 hours? Right. <laughs> like, which, yeah, I mean, some people haven't done much, but in your case, we've, you've done a lot, which we'll talk about. Your weekend was pretty eventful with your bike riding and I don't forget the term but we'll talk we'll about talk that. all about that yes 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 lots of failures to be shared well that's good failures are good right but first things first let's address slaying data silos can you please describe what that is? oh man so this is a term that I think I first coined when I was working at AWS so it's been a problem I don't know if if you guys that are listening are like what's a data silo if you've ever been in the point where you have data in like an 15 Excel spreadsheets that you're manually trying to munge, and maybe you're feeling all sophisticated and bringing it into Python, but you have all these manual processes because your data is living in all these different places. Maybe it's text files, it's probably a lot of Excel, 
I coined this concept with this great team I was working with at AWS because the whole idea there is that you can slay these different silos where data is stored. Because when you can bring it together, you can find the intersectionality of your data. That's where the magic happens. Mm. That's where you can use analytics. That's where you have enough data to even try things like machine learning. And that's where you're able to actually innovate. Mm. It also is a little bit of an inside joke because I'm obsessed with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, including the graphic novels. Ah, and tell us about that. When did that passion start? <laughs> if you're not, if you're not aware of the the '90s TV show, it has a now probably it could be considered to have a little bit of a problematic past, but it's a, okay. a great TV series, and the graphic novels that accompany it are spectacular. Yeah. Spoiler alert for those of you listening: if you've never met me or haven't picked up in the 30 seconds I've been talking, I am a little bit of a nerd which is a common theme you'll probably see. Right, but nowadays nerds are cool. When I was growing up, nerds were not so cool, but now I feel like everyone is trying to be somewhat of a nerd. I know, and right? we're, like, we're the same science. age, right. which is really unfortunate because I grew up in this little town in Alaska. And so oh, cool. my love of Star Trek Voyager as a child did not translate into being cool. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas is now those jokes are, are very in vogue and now there's gifts you can use and people appreciate that. Yeah, no, they embrace it, right? Yeah. It's, it is funny. It's, it's funny. interesting how times change. It was one of the other most interesting things I found in your LinkedIn profile dates back all the way to 2009, which most recently you've re-entered that world, but you used to be a spin instructor for <laughs> UW Recreational Sports. Liz, why did you stop teaching spin class? And then tell us how you re-entered the world of biking. Oh, man. So I I frequently joke that I want to be a motivational speaker when I grow up. And, yeah, in, and you can be. I totally see that in your deck of cards, Liz. Seriously. Cue the, the early Chris Farley SNL jokes about living in a van down by the river. <laughs> yes. So when I started grad school, I had a really good friend who now is, a, now is a professor, and she convinced me to take some spin classes, and I fell in love with it instantly. Right. I ended up becoming an instructor. I led the program there. I grew it from X number of professor professors who X number of instructors. We grew it. We standardized the program. What? And I ended up teaching spinning for the UW-Madison swim team. And some of the other sports teams, we did all their cardio conditioning. I got to travel with them to Hawaii for their winter training. I had swimmers I worked with that I still talk to today that made the national team. And I got to work with these D1 athletes. That is so cool. And having the chance to work with some of the best of the best, these mentally tough, on top of their game individuals, inspired me to do great things. It led me to do an Ironman, to compete at triathlons at a pretty serious level. But in many ways, it kind of led some of that foundation for how I've been able to really pivot my career and dig deep when the time comes. Hmm. This is all kind of an aside, but I found that teaching spinning really, at first I thought it would be a way to go on a stage and talk about watts and drills and really just have great playlists and listen to my music. But in, in many ways, it became a way just to learn from some of the best athletes I'd ever worked with. Okay, And I realized that I was born to spend time on a bike. And after moving to San Diego and moving back here in COVID, I had gotten away from spending time on a bike. And so about six months ago, I sat down and made a list of things that I wanted to do. I was searching for a new hobby. And I reached out to a woman named Claire, who I used to work with at Hess. She was a just awesome geologist out there. We worked together a little bit. And I pinged her on Facebook Messenger and said, hey, 
I've always wanted to try riding my bike at a velodrome. Do we right. happen to have one in Houston? And now if you're listening and you have never heard of a velodrome, think Olympics. Think one of those tracks. We have one in Houston, the Elkhack Velodrome. It has 33 degree banked sides. It's which, pretty steep. Yeah. If you walk up to that, it's terrifying. Yeah. Like on TV, it doesn't look that steep, so, but it's pretty. Yeah. So terrifying. And you yeah. ride a fixed gear bike with no brakes. Oh, there's no brakes? No brakes. Okay, that changes the dynamic a bit. Totally. And Claire messages back like an hour later and is like, well, my husband, Stuart, is actually the director of the velodrome and we can get you in a new rider class in a few months. Did you know this before you messaged I did not know this. What's the chances of that? Exactly. (laughs) I was like, well, well, ginger snaps. I guess the universe is really looking out for me here. Yeah, apparently. And since I told her, you know, you can't back out of it once people know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is the power of saying your goals out loud. I know. Which is funny because some people are scared to say their goals out loud. But anyway, I digress. No, you should always be terrified to say your goals out loud, which is why you should do it. Exactly. My point. Perfect. So if you're listening right now, pick up your phone, text someone that big, scary, audacious goal, and then you'll get it out there in the universe. Right. So I now it's out there. So I sign up. I take this class (laughs) probably two months ago now, and I show up. And the other writers that are there, almost all of them have their own bikes. Like they show up with their own bikes. That's legit. I'd never ridden a fixed gear bike in my life. And one of the coaches, Coach Carl, is there and we're getting ready to pedal. And I ask a lot of questions. And so I'm like, what about this? What about this? What about this? And I'll never forget the look on his face. He's like, oh, doubtful one. Just trust me. Yeah. I've been doing this longer than you've been alive. Just get on the bike. Get on the bike and pedal, and damn just it. pedal. Yeah. Like <laughs> it will work out. That's so funny. And Coach Carl is incredibly, incredibly wise. And so my nickname is now ODO for O Doubtful One. O Doubtful One. Fits okay. on so many levels. I did not end up crashing spectacularly. Okay, and so after, yeah, you're here without a cast. That's yeah, good. After working my way up and doing a few loops of the velodrome, I'm pretty sure they had to drag me kicking and screaming off there because I was He's absolutely in love. Okay. So is it called loops or laps? Like what's the right term? Because that loop, I would have never thought. But lap, no, I, I, see. I it's lap. I'm still see, and that's the thing. Right, that's I'm the fun still part. Learning such a newbie, thing. yeah. And so I finish the class. I'm packing up my stuff, and I get talking to this other woman that's there, who's just like super humble, was answering all my questions. And Coach Carl walks up, and she's like, and Coach Carl says to me, "Do you know what those stars on her kit mean? The kit's like the spandex <laughs> uniform, you." Okay. And I'm like, I that she's a badass American. I don't know. And Coach Carl's <laughs> like, national championships. Ah, you're and the presence like, of greatness, Liz. What? What? And this woman I'm talking to, this woman named Tracy. Hi, Tracy, if you're listening. I'm like, say what now? And Carl's like, how many have you won, Tracy? And she's like, counting. Counting, because they're multiple. It's wow. four. And so I, I end up getting Tracy's number, and her and I are now texting every few days to keep each other accountable. What? Because that's just the level of awesome, humble talent we have here. And it's incredible. And the story though, is then the thing that that you were alluding to is that I I did my first time trials this past weekend Mm -hmm. and I took last place out of the females. Right. Which is- Which I thought was great. I'm so, so, so proud of that. Right. Yeah. Like I showed up, I did time trials. I didn't fall off the bike. And in so many things in my life, and even 10 years ago, being like a competitive triathlete and having various levels of ego earlier, telling the story, I'd be like, I did the time trials, I did this. But now looking back, the thing I'm the most proud of is just the experience to get there. And there isn't a certain pride or shame that comes with the placement whatsoever. It just kind of is. And that sounds oddly zen right here, but 
the exhilaration that comes with doing something new and that momentary, like just the smiles and the enjoyment of doing it is more, more proud. And that sense of internal happiness is, I'm so much happier about that than anything else that goes out to it. And mm-hmm. I wanted to share that with you and anyone that's listening, because to me, that's the epitome of a new hobby. And like, that is an achievement that I've unlocked in my career and in my life is like picking up a new hobby, trying it, sucking at it and being totally happy with that because it's about the journey, not the destination. Right. No. And that's so true. And we talked a little bit earlier is that as we get older and as kids, we always are trying things for the first time. And whether it's going to a new school, whether it's, you know, playing on the new team or, you know, just entering a new group of friends or going to the park that you've never been to or jumping off a cliff into a water. Like there's just like millions of things that we experienced as a child. And as we get older, we get stuck in the same routine. And, you know, part of it is fear of failing. Part of it is, is you just, you naturally gravitate towards the things that are comfortable because most people don't like the feeling of being uncomfortable. And once they feel like they've kind of accomplished the things that they want to, then they just kind of like grease the groove of living in Groundhog Day, which I made a post on LinkedIn this morning about that actually. And this weekend, my family and I got invited to at a friend's house, big shout out to Andrew Coronado, good friend of mine, a great group of people over. And we ran into another couple who had made a career pivot during COVID because during COVID, it was kind of an opportunity to, you know, reflect and yeah. look in the mirror and say, like, I always alluded to, I don't know if you've seen the movie Zoolander. Yeah. Yes. You know, when he looks in the puddle and he's like, who am I? <laughs> I feel like that was COVID for a lot of people. So many. <laughs> That and living on orange mocha frappuccinos. Come on. <laughs> well, that's a good point, too. If any of the Starbucks were open certain times, which a lot of times you could pick up. But anyway, so it gave us opportunity like, who am I? And so now people are like taking opportunities to do things that they truly love. And mm-hmm. or maybe, you know, during COVID tried things that it's like, wow, like I haven't done this or I've been thinking about doing this. Well, you know, the world as we know it may never be the same. So let's yeah. just try something different. But anyway, that feeling of doing those things oftentimes as an adult, we lose. And so I'm curious for you, Liz, obviously doing, you know, the Velotron and biking, but how can people get out of being in such a like routine based lifestyle and are always like, oh, it'd be nice if I could do this, but I don't have the time or, oh, I wish I could do that. And I mean, is there a way to sort of like get yourself mentally out of that sort of constant hamster wheel? Because it is pretty challenging. And it's terrifying. I think the first thing you need to do though, is admit that Failing and doing new things is scary. Right. Like these these types of things, and I play it off like it wasn't a, oh, I just showed up for an intro beginner class. I slept like four hours the night before. My palms are still sweaty right now even thinking about how <laughs> terrifying it was. Even, <laughs> even like... I play it off like it was really cool and not a big deal. It was such a big deal. And so I think acknowledging your fears and recognizing that these things are terrifying and just giving voice to that can be really helpful. Yeah. I think a part of it too, though, is acknowledging why you want to do that. So for instance, if you want to try a new exercise routine, what's your why there? And Mm. I'm a really big believer that motivation will be transient. It'll come and go. This is why you see people come into the gym in January and they tend to peak off. But those routine, those habits, they're going to be sustainable. They need to be sustainable, Mm -hmm. which is kind of ironic because, you know, 10 years ago, I was a huge fan of doing something for a set amount of time. Like I would love a good whole 30 or a good, huge, massive lifestyle change. And my now husband, 
He was one who would always be of the mindset, I'm not going to do anything that I can't maintain forever, whether it's just walking 10 minutes a day or just making small Hmm. incremental changes. And looking into the sociology research, if I remember correctly, there do tend to be various personality types about what will work for you. So if you're one of those that needs that big kick in the rear to get started, go with that. Whereas if it's a small incremental change, go with that. But I think knowing your why is ultimately the most important. If it's something that's going to help your health so that it can make you feel better, that's one thing. But if your why is for your kids or your family, that can be so much more powerful than just you. Mm -hmm. I think also recognizing that you're spot on the world that we're in today, the career paths, the external forces, everything from the housing market to where people are congregating to how the grid is going to be built out. All of that is fundamentally moving in a different place than it was even two or three years ago. And that means that the excuses that you've always given yourself probably need to be reexamined. Right. No, that's so true. So it kind of leads me a little bit into the next question. We're talking about like how things are changing. I know you're passionate with regards to solving pressing energy challenges. And one of the questions I had is what are the current energy challenges that you're experiencing or that you feel are important and where are you at with solving these energy problems? Oh man, I just, if you guys were here, I just like perked up in my chair. I got very excited. (laughs) I have so, man, where do we even start? I think so many of the challenges right now involve making sense of the data and figuring out what to do. I'm just going to probably list a laundry list of some of the coolest things that have been rattling in my brain. Also, if you want to learn more about any of these, I do have a podcast. It's the Horizons podcast through Wood McKenzie. We'll put the link in the show notes. And the coolest part of this is that speaking of that beginner's mindset where you're not really sure what you're doing and you kind of come in, (laughs) I get an interview our Woodmac research experts, and we always invite in an external industry guest expert. So I get paired with like the two best people in the world about a topic, wow. and I get to ask them the questions. Mm. And so some of, and they tend to be on the topics I'm the most curious about. So it's it's a little bit self-indulgent, but <laughs> some of the energy challenges that we've talked about recently include plastics and how we can think about a more sustainable full circle value chain. We had this guy, Dr. Lars Berger from Ness come in to talk about the role of individual consumers versus plastic manufacturers as a whole. Wow. We talk about does actually breaking down those plastic six pack holders save sea turtles? Mm. Things things that actually is like, you know, as a kid, yeah. you always think make a difference. Save the turtles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It turns out that's probably not the biggest thing we can do for plastics, but instead putting more force towards the manufacturers to have full circle integrative plastics recycling and reducing your own personal use are probably much more impactful. Okay. Another thing that's rattling around in my head is just this whole notion of socioeconomic disparities in the energy transition. And as we try to accelerate our road to net zero, it's going to be great for some populations who already have access to clean energy, but there's other populations that aren't going to be so lucky. Mm-hmm. I interviewed Monique Mahdi, who's an environmental leadership fellow at Harvard. And the analogy she used is, yeah, it's easy for us to tighten our belts because we have more holes in the belt. But what about people in Africa, for instance, mm-hmm. that are already struggling for places for clean water or for having electricity on demand? And so we had an episode where we talked about mini grids. I don't know how in the loop with mini grids you are, but we had uh, William Brent, the CMO of Husk Power Systems, come in. And essentially, one of there, there's a lot of diesel generation systems in Africa. But these idea of mini grids where you can take these self-sustained 
power generating units where you can have solar panels, you can you can couple them with energy storage mechanisms, biogenic gas generation systems. There's mini grids, there's microgrids, they operate at different scales. But until you work up a full grid system for Africa or other places that are more remote, I like Africa as an example because it's so heterogeneous. There mm-hmm. are some places that are more populated. There are some areas that are more technically sophisticated. But essentially, you can plop down mini grids to have these self-sustained and isolated power-generating units so that you're able to really raise the level of power-generating capacity for all kinds of people without leaving some people kind of caught out as we're moving towards our road to net zero. Right. So those are, are two of the key challenges. And now coming back to data, I, I love to geek out over architectures and the power of the cloud. I worked at AWS for a while, working with just some of the best and brightest people I've ever worked with. At Woodmac, some of the things we're doing that are really exciting are, first off, just world-class engineering team. But in terms of unconventionals, Yan Yan Wu and her team are working on millions and millions and millions of data points. And in the energy space, typically people say, oh yeah, we have big data, we have millions of data points. But then when you actually scratch underneath the surface, it's not really data at that scale. Okay. And so to see how you can take these millions of unconventional wells, all of their associated data, and then train algorithms on that to actually make insights is fascinating. Because mm. typically when you're building architectures, that signal to noise is really developed and tends to choke around, you know, 10,000, maybe 100,000 data points with energy data systems. It's different than like Spotify or using different types of of input data sets. We can totally go into the weeds some other time. (laughs) And so when you've been able to build systems that can take these very complex energy sets and do something with them, that tends to energize me too, because it's a very complex problem that a lot of people are working on solving. Yeah. And we have, we have some cool work there. So what can you do with some of that stuff then? Like beyond what you're saying, like what is then evolution of the data architecture and then moving into like, as like someone who's not familiar with that space as like a day-to-day consumer, like where's the value for like the average people? Yeah. So with all of this from a whole, there's a few key themes that when you start getting with data as a whole that people are looking for. And this actually all goes back to slaying data silos. The more you can get data in the same format and you can get data really talking to each other, so to speak. The more you can normalize the data, the more you can bring it into the same space, and then the more you can have analytics. And I say analytics very broadly that makes Mm -hmm. sense. That can be everything from predictive analytics, so you know what to expect. You can have models that are historically matched. Mm. And places you don't have data, you can make more accurate predictions. Uh, And then with that, if there are places that you want to predict in the future what might happen or areas that you just have no data at all, you can have that capability and extend it. Gotcha. Okay. So I'm curious on that topic or or really any of the topics that we've talked about so far, what core beliefs have you changed your mind over in the last couple of years? Has there, and does anything, and it could be personal business, data architecture, energy, net zero, climate catastrophe, anything, like any core belief that's changed that you can think of? That is a very good question. I really want to flip it to you. Is there anything you've changed your mind over the past few years? <laughs> is, that, is that cheating? No, you can totally do that. I think the notion of the whole, I mean, there's a couple, but one thing that comes to mind is just like the work environment and organizational culture that we've 
like all been hung up on and especially since COVID being like, Oh wow, we can all work from home and kind of the, you know, at first I said, yeah, we could all do this. And why would we ever need to go back to the office? But now I've realized like how much humans, like just the degree of importance of human interaction and like a form of self-isolation is actually so detrimental to advancing in so many different ways. And so I just think from the sort of a human nature psychological and and emotional sort of health of of humans i think that the push of like we could all work from home and then like so many companies were like we're now just going to work from home i think that to me has been like not necessarily a core relief that's changed but i always thought oh it'd be so cool to work from home and now i'm like no i thrive around people and i knew that before but i just didn't it's now more apparent that it's hard to build culture and depth like relationship depth over technology and you can but i still think human interaction is is extremely important for innovation and acceleration of everything i think trust that trust piece in person is really important i think the thing that is just really really I've come to understand and really been able to grok a lot more is the importance of culture. Mm. I've always seen, I think I saw this at like an HBR article like 10 years ago and, oh, culture is an iceberg. There's the part of the top that you see and the rest of it you don't. And then over the past two or three years having to, I so I joined Wood McKenzie about eight, nine months ago and it was all remote. Mm. And I'm actually heading to Edinburgh in a week and a next week to meet my the majority of my team for the first time in person. Oh, cool. Which is crazy to think that I've been working with these people. I've been talking to them every day, but I've never met them in person. And stepping in as a new executive and a new leader and building that culture and trying to figure out what that's going to be, I would say it's been probably two to eight times harder to figure out how we grow data architecture. There was no data architecture org before I started what that is without doing it in person, because you have to put down your values. You have to have a vision and a mission Mm -hmm. and you can say it again and again. So people can hear the words and they know what the words are, but so much of culture for a new team is having that instinctive reaction. So people know how they need to act and having the coaching and making it so everyone on the team knows what to expect and has those instinctive reflexes for this is what's expected of us. Not just from a technical perspective, but from an interpersonal perspective, from a team building perspective. And I have found that to be so, so challenging remotely, Mm. especially when you are having more difficult conversations or you are working to bring over stakeholders that maybe aren't used to seeing things in a certain way, because you can't just sit down face to face. You can't look at them in the eye. You can't go up to a whiteboard and sketch it out. Mm-hmm. I also, I think another part too is I've had to be much more flexible in my leadership styles. You know, is a type A extrovert person that tends to be very, you guys, you can't see this, but I'm gesturing very broadly. I'm making all <laughs> these physical motions to bring you into my conversation. <laughs> yeah. I've had to definitely open up like a 64 pack of crayons, maybe before I was working with an eight or 16 pack of crayons for how to (laughs) like, are we going to work on this in this color crayon or this? I've had to be much more flexible both in, in tools and how to get people thinking about how we can engage and work together, which sometimes means doing things in a very different way. And sometimes it means just taking a very different tact, which to me has been a really unique learning experience. But yeah, these are much more interpersonal, I think, than technical. 
because yeah. the the technical learnings, the power of the cloud, the power of a lot of these past and SaaS solutions are either building or we've been leveraging. Those have all been pretty just awesome and have continued to build and continue to innovate. It's been a lot of the ensuring that teams are comfortable and they feel like they have the psychological safety to be able to do things in a way that feels organic to them. Mm -hmm. Super interesting to think about. One thing that I've also thought about is like, and I wouldn't know if it's like a core belief change, but it's something that I've sort of thought about more on a macro level is like the world's like everyone's so focused on and for the right reasons, like controlling the climate and making sure that, you know, we don't all, you know, like CO2 levels rise and the world implodes and, and whatever other theories are out there. But it's I think the best thing that we could possibly do for the planet, and we touched on a little bit, is like actually providing reliable, abundant, and affordable energy to the entire planet. I think at that point, then we'll really be able to make impact on, I guess, climate control or whatever. But like, are there any conversations in your sort of network or your world about, I guess, aside from the microgrids, right? Deploying that, which I think would be amazing. But like, do we have enough technology and resources to actually provide electricity to the world? Because I think anything that can be electrified is going to oh, be. Man. Is that even feasible? That is a very, very heavy question. And it is a very, very good question too. There's actually several podcast episodes about what it would take, what the compromises would be to get there. I think, and this is not meant to be a total divergence to your question, because the short answer to your question is, I don't know if, for instance, I don't think we have enough rare earth elements that are easily accessible us to have full electrification of our transportation system, for instance, mm -hmm. and what the trade-offs necessary of that would be versus other pieces of the grid that might need to be electrified. I don't off the top of my head know what that would be. There's there's a whole podcast episode. Sure. It's super, it's a very, again, it's very a, complex question and a lot of complex answers, I'm sure. But, you know, it's... What I think, though, is an interesting approach though. And as, as humans, I know I tend to be guilty of like an all or nothing type thinking. And so what, what's been really interesting to do is really figure out how we can love locally and take on some of these more sustainability focused pieces within our own realm. And so one thing that we've done at work and Woodmax's mission is to transform how we power the planet, which oh, I love that. It's it's actually really cool because it means that we can help in so many different ways. Yeah. And one thing that we've been doing, and one thing that my broader team has launched in the past few months, is we started a cloud sustainability community of practice. Cool. So I'm going to unpack this for a minute because you're probably thinking cloud sustainability. What? So workloads <laughs> run on the cloud can have up to an 88 percent lower carbon footprint than workloads run on prem. That means those huge oh. server farms that you typically think of. And we're, we're an analytics company. We're a data company. So we have a lot of workloads running. Those antiquated server farms have really energy inefficient server populations. You pop those up to the cloud. You save a lot of energy just by moving them up there. Hmm. But you can take it several steps farther than that. AWS actually just published a whole well-architected pillar on sustainability. So they're putting it in the same bucket as things like security and reliability, which is really cool. And what you can do to optimize, there's all kinds of things, but one thing that we're doing as a company is looking at our computing languages. Mm. So some of my team, this awesome team led by Dan Dixie, they're looking at this programming language, Rust. Have you yeah. ever heard of Rust? No, I haven't. Okay, you should Google this. I am such a fan of Rust. It is, it's my new obsession these days. Okay. Workloads run on Rust tend to be very fast and very efficient. Okay. 
It's compiled. It's not interpreted. Rust is a relatively new language. And so when we move our workloads, run on something like Python into Rust, it's way faster. And when it's faster, it tends to be cost optimized. And since you're using the compute, the cloud compute resources for shorter, it has smaller CO2 emissions. So we can, yeah, we can do things like estimate or do models, deliver those to our analysts and our customers a lot faster and save CO2 at the same time. Win-win. I know. And our awesome engineering teams get to learn a new language. Right. Which goes directly back to that whole learning new things. So what are some of the challenges with deploying a new language like that? Well, there's actually a laundry list. Again, like many of those things I've talked about, they seem very easy at the high level, but when you tend to break them down, if you are an engineer who typically learns new languages, it's actually a lot like learning a new spoken language. The more you do them, the easier they tend to be. If you're not used to using compiled languages, you have to get used to that. Rust is a language with a really good open source community around it. So there's Mm. ongoing support, but it's still one that's actively growing. Interesting. Okay. And so then just from a, like an app op side, we need to make sure we have the support. We need to make sure we are able to continue to support that and make sure that we have the engineers that are able to really be domain experts in the language. Wow. Would you say Wood McKenzie is a very, I guess, an early adopter of a lot of technology and things like that? Like you guys seem very progressive in your thinking and like the new language and some of the stuff that you spoke about. Are they constantly forging ahead looking to like capture new, because you know how there's that graph where it's like early adopters, early majority, and then late adopters and the ones who like wait for it all to fan yeah. out that don't ever get to yield the results of Which anything exciting. It's so funny because I've seen that graph used as a tech company and I've also been working for an oil company and I find that the criteria working at a more traditional oil and gas versus tech company, the adoption criteria tend to be very different. Yes. I will say that at Woodmac, we are building a world-class engineering team. And part of that is having a finger to the wind to figure out what technology is coming down. And yeah. we're going to use whatever we need to, to transform how we power the planet. For sure. Cool. And this is kind of a, an odd question, perhaps, but is does Web3 or anything along those lines play into your world at all? I think all new technology and all emerging technology plays into my world, and it should play into everyone that has a title with the word architecture or engineering's word. Gotcha. Okay. Makes sense. I like that. Yeah. I mean, you- there's there's so many pieces of what's being developed, what's emerging, and what innovation could and will look like. There's a lot of really cool things out there, like quantum computing, for instance, where they're probably not going to be ready for production for at least two to five, maybe 10 years. But right now with quantum, we're defining the problems. We're figuring out what that looks like. Gotcha. Being an, not even an early adopter, but being an early person who reads the literature and knows what that could look like will ensure that as the problems evolve, if and when there are fully ready, production-ready chipsets that we can be used, means that we'll at least have a car in that race and we're ready to go. Yeah. No, it sounds very much like it. So I want to pivot a little bit and talk podcasting, since we're on a podcast. Tell the listeners a little bit about what your podcast is and, yeah, kind of the purpose behind that and when what the why was for you oh man so it is the horizons podcast it's a candid take on the energy industry cool and it actually started when i joined woodmac we have these horizons report they come out every month it's really like the 
coolest bit of the energy transition research. Every month, Woodmac published them. There's these Horizons report. You can check them out at Woodmac under Horizons. And they're already LinkedIn Live sessions about them, and they decided to turn them into a podcast. And through a somewhat random series of events, they invited me to host. <laughs> and so it's it's crazy. I get to talk to the world experts in these topics. Wow, okay. And just like you're talking to me, I get to sit down and ask them things like, do do cutting plastic six-pack holders save the sea turtles? <laughs> and everyone's been a phenomenal sport. I've learned yeah. crazy amount about it. And it's available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all the usual suspects. Excellent. Well, like I said, we'll put the link in the show notes. But what are some of the key takeaways that you've experienced or, or that learned since starting the podcast? Oh, Oh man, one of my other favorite episodes was about China and about how China has been set up as such a dominant player in the energy transition. Mm -hmm. One thing I learned is that China's, the way they're thinking about wind turbines versus solar panels, I used to think they were pretty equivalent, that they both were a way that China could develop a road towards having some renewable energy materials, but really they're completely different. They're not even apples and oranges. I think the analogy I used was like tomatoes and banana, like heirloom tomatoes and bananas, because the wind turbines have primarily been developed to be used locally since they're so big. Shipping's not really going, you're, you're not going to ship one of these massive wind turbines across the planet to be used. Whereas the chips that go into solar panels, China produces something like 98% of all the wafers that go into chips. Right. They're small. They can easily be sent all over the world. And they've really locked down that part of the supply chain for their chipsets. So that kind of presents a little risk, doesn't it? Having that much market or control over the market? It absolutely does. But at the same time, they are able to do it so much more efficiently than anybody else because they've set up pretty much full vertical integration where their plants are because they were able to start from the ground up and they have things co-located in these centers. Uh. There's a full episode about it. Andy Klump, who's the CEO of Clean Energy Associates, and Alex Whitworth from Woodmac talk all about it in much, much more eloquent detail than I can. Okay. I feel like I've subscribed to so many podcasts and I continuously add to my subscription list and then I also I have to like purge. But that's one that I'm going to subscribe to because those are some of the topics that I just love learning about, right? Yeah. And what's what's been fascinating for me is that I consider myself to be pretty well versed on these topics. I read articles about them. I subscribe to Wired Magazine. So I feel like that at least brings me up to at least the top 25%. <laughs> and yeah. every single episode, I don't know if you feel like this hosting the podcast, but there's always four or five moments where I just... I sit there and my mind is blown and I yeah. always forget it's my turn to talk because I'm speechless because connecting pieces that are so orthogonal and thinking through how, for instance, chipset manufacturing in China will actually propagate into this, which is connected to this and this and this, and how really interconnected and what a spider web all of these pieces are just continues to blow my mind. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about China. I mean... That's a big topic of conversation with how much control they have over a lot of things, rare earth elements being one of them, like you described earlier. Are, are they like a key player to the future of, say, energy development? And how can we as a nation continue to work well with China? Like, What are your thoughts on that? That's a great question. I think China is absolutely a key player alongside the US, alongside other players like Russia and Ukraine. Our, the next episode of the podcast is actually all about Russia and Ukraine. Ah. Continuing to maintain 
positive working relationships is going to be key. Unfortunately, I don't have a short answer for how to do that. I do think it is crucial to remember though, and one thing I've learned from the podcast is that the energy transition in many ways is a zero-sum game because mm. we're all going to win this together as citizens of the planet yeah. or we're all going to fail together. Right. So that, again, is another interesting topic. And one of the things that I've considered or at least some of the things that kind of bother me a lot of times is, and I mean, again, I was, you know, I cut my teeth on a drilling rig. I'm 100% pro oil and gas. I think we need it. It's it's not going anywhere but the the notion that it's always us against the world, right? It's us against them. It's us or them. Ultimately, I think it's going to take all forms of energy. And need, the narrative needs to be not us against them, but how can we work together with them? To change the narrative, and I would suspect that you are also pro-fossil fuels to some degree. I mean, plastics in manufacturing, there's so many places that fossil fuels are needed that are not just for transportation. Right. So with that being said, how can we as an industry put ourselves in a positive light to where then it's not always this tug of war? I mean, will there ever be a world where we embrace each form of energy? Or is do you feel like it's always going to be this? Because I, I feel like in order for us to advance to the next level, there has to be some some working together. And I see it a little bit. A lot of companies are starting, you know, a lot of the UK companies are starting to like BP shell, a lot of them. And again, economics aside and share price and everything else, let's forget about that for now. But, you know, shell ventures and, you know, all these different companies yeah. coming together, adopting technologies, you know, and then here it seems more like, like say the Chevrons, the Exxons are more focused on carbon capture and that sort of technology, you know? So I guess, again, I see things happening. People's intents are good. But how can we change the narrative to where a lot of people who are anti-fossil fuels can say, well, you know what, like, they're not so bad after all. And they're not just trying to price gouge. And, you know, yeah. a lot of the things that we kind of get dinged on. Yeah, that's another great question. Your questions have been spot on well, <laughs> Curiosity kills a cat, or, <laughs> as they say. I'm thinking, too, about the analogy I made earlier about culture being an iceberg and thinking about that because I think you're absolutely spot on. There is such this modality that it's us versus them. It's either 100% renewable fuels or oil and gas. And the infrastructure is, is nowhere near being there. I cannot, in my wildest dreams, imagine a world where some switch is flipped and we go from using hydrocarbons to no hydrocarbons. Because even if one country could do that. It's not fair to the countries in Africa, for instance, where there are diesel generators. And there's a lot of people in the, the world who don't have the ability to spend more money to have, quote unquote, cleaner types of energy. And I say, quote unquote, cleaner, because a lot of these types of energy do have reliance on things like rare earth elements that require a lot of mining. Or a lot of these different technologies require tremendous amounts of water to be made. And water is also going to be a very limited resource. Mm. When we look at things like solar panels, it takes tremendous amount of water to actually make the solar panels and to keep them clean, especially in arid parts of the world where they need to be wiped down for dust. Mm. So it's not just going to come down to oil and gas or hydrocarbons versus non-hydrocarbons. How we progress that, I think, I, I fear it's just going to be a lot of conversations and a lot of coming, these types of conversations hopefully at least can have a little tiny bit mm -hmm. coming from a very small town in Alaska. I know every time I go back up there, 
I have conversations where I'm the one who seems so very, very progressive in my views. And then when I visit my in-laws who live in Nicaragua, I'm the one that seems so very conservative in my views. Mm. And so it's, it's somewhat of an interesting dichotomy to be having the same position and yet being seen through different lenses about that. But from my individual action piece, all I can do is keep providing data and insights and analytics that really help to unlock these silos, to transform mm. and provide more data, keep using the podcast and podcasts like this to help yeah. provide those conversations. But also in my personal life, not shy away from these. And right. to the people that are listening to, I would challenge you to have respectful and worthwhile conversations. There's ways you can talk about these things and just be a total ass about them that don't make anything better. Which I think a lot of the majority of conversations coming from both sides is not constructive. It's trying to prove a point and bash the other side, yeah. which doesn't help which, anybody. No, because we all want the same things. We And to the podcast on plastics, one of my big takeaways there is that we need plastics in this world. Right. If you're in a hospital room, you want clean, sterilized plastics. If you're climbing up a mountain, you don't need soggy wool gloves. You want Gore-Tex that's going to keep you warm and keep the frostbite away. Mm -hmm. You're going to need hydrocarbons if you were in the middle of nowhere and need an on-demand diesel generator. There, You're going to need plastics, which come from hydrocarbons in these same situations. There are use cases for all of these things. And again, much like the energy transition is a zero-sum game because we're all going to be alive or not at the end of the day, this transition to get there is not a zero-sum game. There's so many shades of gray. There's so many nuances that come along with it. Mm -hmm. And that compassion and that understanding and leading with the simple tools of, you know, hearing people and really listening and seeing them and right. really being citizens of the same planet first right. above any partisan sides, I think sometimes that gets lost. It does. No, and, and one thing too is that arguably speaking, you're a product of your environment. I grew up in British Columbia, close to Vancouver, where it's, you know, a lot of forestry, a lot of, you know, liberal folks who are very much, you know, I most of the people I went to elementary school and high school probably are very anti-oil and gas. And I, I see it on their social media feeds and everything else. And I used to always kind of troll them and say, oh, well, <laughs> well, don't drive your car to work then. And, you know, because I was just, it frustrated me. Yeah. And in my mind, I'm like, how could they be so dumb? But then I realized, I'm like, wait, if I still live there and I was in the environment that I grew up in, because a lot of my family, friends, stuff like that are very much into yeah, save the planet. And, and from what they've learned and what they've been taught through whatever source of information they've had, like that's what they truly believe. And, you know, I don't think at first it was like, oh, they just are jealous because oil and gas companies make a bunch of money. Well, I think that's kind of an old sort of, you know, like I've heard that and I think that's kind of old way to think about it. But I say that to say like, I kind of, I understand the other side. Yeah. I have a lot of family and friends that have, don't want anything to do with oil and gas. A lot of people in my inner social circle don't, but if we can lead conversations with like a high sense of empathy, and I know it's, yeah. it sounds, you know, woo woo and oh, like it's soft or whatever, like I don't really care. But at the end of the day, I've always had the best conversations when I just say, well, tell, like, tell me more. Like, I really want to learn. Help me understand. Yeah. Help me understand what you're coming from because I really try to learn. And perhaps if you provide me some information that may kind of change my thought pattern and, yeah. and I can understand more of like 
the position that you're in because I want to understand you and, and I would love the opportunity to share information so that you understand kind of where I'm coming from. And together we have a great conversation. I learned some things, they learned some things, but then they walk away from it being like, wow, this person who grew up on a drilling rig is not, you know, this thing that I thought this person yeah. was. Absolutely. And when I when I was first leaving grad school, I had no intentions to ever go work for an oil and gas company. I was at my PhD in astrobiology. I was going to go postdoc for NASA. And I interned at Hess. And one of my intern projects was looking at well-operating envelope and completions and using some probabilistic techniques. And one of the things that I realized is if we did things a little bit differently, we could save a whole bunch of water. And I realized that as an applied geologist for an oil and gas company, that by being there, I could have more of an impact with the amount of water that was saved on the inside than ever just kind of whinging about it from the outside. And to me, that was huge. And then when I went in and actually worked there, I did a whole bunch of projects looking at unconventional completions, looking at screen outs, looking at how we could actually use fewer resources to do what we were doing. And to me, having more of an impact on resource consumption from the inside as opposed to the outside was a complete paradigm shift. And it was huge. And then talking to my family and my friends about that, they had no idea that if companies could save money and consume less water or have less environmental risk, it was in their best interest to do that. And so I got to feel warm and fuzzy. I got to do something that aligned with my values. And I also had the company enact it because it was in line with what they wanted. And so to me, that was a huge light bulb moment. But at the same time, going into these conversations and saying and sharing my experiences like that is a good way to say, hey, I'm on the same side. The point that I was actually going to make is when I was debating going into oil and gas or not, I had a very close mentor and I was having, personally, I was having significant hangups because I always thought I was going to go work and go work for NASA and be this kind of scientist. And I never saw myself working for an oil and gas company. And he had lunch with me one day and said, Liz, as a geologist, if I could stop our reliance on oil and gas and be out of a job tomorrow, I would. And I guarantee every other geologist I know here would as well. You should ask them. And I was like, that can't be right. You are making like, at the time, I didn't know how much oil and gas geologists were making. I was like, you're making probably almost six figures and you would say that? Yeah. <laughs> and so I asked the other oil and gas geologists, like, you love the outdoors, you love nature. How do you come to terms with this? And universally, they all said, oh, if me not doing this job would magically fix all of our reliance on hydrocarbons and we would be at like net zero emissions, I would do it in a heartbeat. But that's not the reality we're facing. And by doing this, I can help to make sure that we are operating in a way that I have oversight. We're drilling fewer wells. We're maximizing mm. what we're doing. I feel like I'm more part of the solution than part of the problem. And to me, that was a complete paradigm shift because I realized that these people that I respected and trusted were there not just because they wanted to make a big paycheck and do whatever they wanted, but they really saw themselves of stewards of fossil fuels in many, many ways. Yeah. And I that was completely unprecedented for me. Wow. That's a fantastic story. And again, I think it probably resonates with a lot of people. We're getting close on time, and I do want to respect your time, but I always like to close out with a couple of personal questions, but not too personal. Don't worry. So the first one I'd, I'd like to ask is if you have any daily habits or routines that contribute to your success. I, 
I love habits and routines a lot more than I would probably admit. I wake up ridiculously early because I'm a morning person. Okay. These days, I'm all about doing my daily Wordle and oh, Wordle yeah. and Global. I like to do all three and make myself a giant cup of decaf coffee and I'll let my dog out after he gets breakfast. Interesting. Okay, so for those who aren't familiar, what is Wordle and Global and... <laughs> Because I know what they are, but I think if I think you could get a few more people addicted. This is going to go down as one of those things that is like early 2022. And if you're <laughs> listening in a few years, you'd be like, what? Is that the sourdough bread of 2022? Right. So it's a daily puzzle that was recently purchased from the New York Times where you have six guesses to guess a five-letter puzzle. When I first started Wordle, I hated it. I did not win for the first like three weeks. <laughs> My brain does not do well with word puzzles, but I'm okay. progressively getting better. And I have some friends that I exchange our solutions with. Yeah. And then the one I like more is it's a globe and you get to pick the country. Oh. And then there's another one that gives you the outline of a country and you guess what country it is. But one of them is just a globe and you can guess what country and it what? heat codes it and you can see how far away you are. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. I had no idea. Okay. Well, hopefully everyone has fun for the next <laughs> few weeks diving into that. And the last one I, I think would be good. And is there a message you'd like to relay, assuming everyone in the world is listening to you right now? And that can be with regards to energy, you know, personal well-being, riding a bicycle, anything. Everyone in the country or everyone in the world? You pick. Okay. If it's everyone in the country, I'm going to say... If you're not scared, you're not pushing yourself far enough. I think that could apply to the world too. I mean, I feel like there are probably bigger issues in the world. And if it was the world, it would be something more like, you got this, keep going, it gets better. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love that. Well, good. Well, you know, this has been such a fantastic conversation. <laughs> so I'm so, much fun. yeah, no, I knew we touched on a lot of different topics. We could have went down some serious rabbit holes, but in the interest of time, you know, we, I think we covered a lot of interesting conversations and for those listening, please subscribe to the horizon podcast. Yep. And yeah, you get to obviously hear Liz talk to some fantastic people in energy and sounds like in many other disciplines. And so I encourage you guys to do that and also follow her on LinkedIn. You can check her out. I'll put her link in the show notes and check out Wood Mac. Wood Mac is, correct me if I'm wrong, but weren't they the ones who were back in Green Tech Media? Yep. Green yeah. Yep. We've acquired Green Tech Media. Or yeah, you guys acquired them. So I listened. So when I was in grad school in global energy management, you know, we touched on renewables and we learned about the whole spectrum. And so I started, you know, one of my professors said, hey, check out Green Tech Media. And then I was a huge follower. I listened to the podcast and it really like fantastic information. Yeah. They had some great hosts. One, I think, left and went to work for the government. I forget the gentleman's name. But anyway, long story short, Wood Mac has just an absolute like massive amounts of information, good information on all things, everything. Because you guys are involved in not only energy, but like so much stuff. Yeah. Massive company, but just also has so much good information and resources for learning about all sorts of stuff. Super generic sort of plug there. But again, it's like, <laughs> it's not just like specific, like you guys aren't niche in anything. You no, guys cover everything. It's so much cool stuff. And if you're a data engineer, or data architect looking for a new opportunity, hit me up. Okay. Or if you want to ride in the velodrome and you're based in Houston, <laughs> I can hook you up with the velodrome people. Awesome. Well, this has been fantastic, Liz. Thank you so much. And for the listeners, if you like the show, please share it with one of your friends, family members, or whoever you think might learn something from it. Uh, and if not, we appreciate the support and leave a review if you could. And always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. 
Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.